0: Hello and welcome to The Stack. On this week's show, we speak with Brazilian writer and journalist Diogo Bercito on his new book talking about the Syrian-Lebanese immigration in Brazil and its influence in the country's political scene. We also speak with award-winning Afghan photographer Massoud Hosseini and Liz Schaefer from Lodestar's Anthology. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Foreign observers of Brazilian politics may be surprised at the profusion of Arabic surnames among the nation's leaders. From leftist Fernando Haddad to former president Michel Temer, they have played a big role on the national stage. While in the past 25 years, São Paulo, Brazil's largest city, has had three mayors of Arabic descent. Experts estimate that between 7 and 10 million Lebanese people emigrated to Brazil in the 20th century, a number greater than Lebanon's current population. A new book by the journalist and writer Diogo Bercito, Brimos, Immigração Sírio-Libanesa no Brasil, look at their stories, asking why Lebanese-Brazilians have done so well in fields such as politics. Here is my chat with Diogo.
1: I was always interested in the Middle East in general. I was always interested in the histories of the Middle East. I did a master's in Arab studies when I was living in Spain, Then I did another one here in the US. I studied Arabic. I've been studying Arabic for more than 10 years. Uh, I worked as a correspondent in Jerusalem for a while. I lived in Beirut, in Cairo. So I always had a connection with the region. But then concerning the book, I started realizing, as we said, we have so many people in Sao Paulo. We have the former mayor of Sao Paulo Fernando Haddad was the son of Lebanese migrants. The same thing another mayor Gilberto Kassab is also descendant. We have another mayor Paulo Malouf who was also descendant. We had of course the president uh, Michel Temer who was also the son of Lebanese migrants. So I I just started to put these stories together and and I just realized there was something that I wanted to tell people. There was something that I wanted to research and I just wanted to write the story.
2: And I think it's fascinating and it's a story that needs to be told because even more recently when Lebanon had, of course, that big explosion, Brazil tried to help precisely because of that uh, very close connection, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, we have very strong links. Sadly, economically, we don't have such a strong link, but at least culturally and historically, we have a very big connection. Of course, Brazil hosts what is probably the largest uh, Lebanese diaspora in the world, uh, we have you know, writers from Arab descent, we have you know, artists, we have politicians, as we said. So when it happened last year, one year ago, actually, the, the explosion in Beirut, Brazil was one of the first countries to offer help. Michel Temer, actually, the former president, uh, traveled there, he brought with him some assistance, he met with politicians. And Diogo, of
2: course, it's very interesting that we we're talking before the interview that you officially, you don't know if you have any Syrian-Lebanese connections, but, but you kind of hope, I mean, you could be, a, you, you know, you told me an interesting family story because there's so many Brazilians that have this kind of connection. Even in my family, my father's second wife, her mother came from kind of from Lebanon as well to Brazil. So it's a very kind of close and personal in a way.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, people forget that Sao Paulo in the 20s, in the 30s, it was a very cosmopolitan city. We had a lot of migrants recently arrived migrants I mean so my family is mostly migrants from Italy we have uh, someone from Portugal someone from Spain and then from my grandmother's my paternal grandmother's side so basically she never met her father and her mom which had migrated from Spain used to say you know there was this Syrian peddler he was walking by we had a we had a story I got pregnant and then he disappeared so that's basically all we know. We, she had a name that she put in, the, in my grandmother's documents, but it's not an Arabic name. We think he might have changed his name, but then he disappeared. So it's kind of one of my dreams. And I say that in the book, that someone might maybe read the book and realize, you know, I met, I met that guy, I know that guy, maybe I'm related to him. And then that I could find this kind of, I already have the emotional, of course, the emotional connection with the subject, but I, I keep hoping that that would be something else that would just make, maybe make me realize that I'm actually really connected to Syria and connected to Lebanon.
2: I think your dream might become true, Diogo. <laughs> Let's uh, hope. And tell us, do you, do you also, I was reading, you were a correspondent in, in a few Arab cities, right? So tell us a bit more. I mean, do you still do this type of journalistic work or are you more of an academic these days?
1: So I've, I've been transitioning, I guess. So I was a correspondent. I lived in Morocco before I studied Arabic there. Then I lived in in Jerusalem to work, and I lived a little bit in Lebanon, a little bit in in Egypt. Uh, I traveled the whole region for work, really. I've been to Iraq, to Syria, to Yemen. Then in 2018, when I came to the U.S., I did my master's at Georgetown. I'm now doing a PhD in history, so I've been more focused on that. I haven't traveled much lately. I still write about it. For instance, I review books, Arabic books that are translated to Portuguese. I've been reviewing them to some magazines, some newspapers in Brazil. I've been interviewing people writing, you know, about what's happening in Afghanistan now. Although, I mean, it's not an Arab country, but it's still in the Middle East, but not, not on the ground, I guess. Not not for now. I mean, I'm not giving up on that. I still want to go there. I still want to live there again. But I think I'm taking care of my formation right now. I just I just felt I needed to know more and have more tools when I go back to the region.
2: And Joe, just returning a little bit to the book, one thing that, I mean, as you said, it's fascinating the amount of politicians we had with you know, some sort of kind of Lebanese heritage as well. Look at our former president, Michel Temer, the former mayors of Sao Paulo as well. It's incredible. I think the, from the last five, almost almost all of them had some sort of ancestry. Is there a reason? Did they adapt it very well to the country when they arrived? Tell us a bit more about that.
1: Yeah, there are several reasons. Uh, one is just the geographic dispersion, I guess. Arab uh, migrants had something very particular when we're comparing them with Italian migrants, for instance. Italian migrants would come subsidized by their government, so they would go to a plantation, for instance, they already had a job there, they were kind of tied to the land, uh, whereas Syrian and Lebanese migrants, uh, they came by themselves, basically, there was no subsidy. So they would arrive in Sao Paulo, for instance, or in Rio, they would settle in the cities, of course, that's where they concentrated, but they would also travel as peddlers, they would literally put in a wooden box on their backs, they would travel, they would walk, they would ride donkeys, you know, to the countryside, so that made them basically present in the whole country, which is something very exceptional, that's the one thing. So they, they happen to represent different constituencies because of that, that's the one thing. The other thing, comparing to other migrant groups, they did a very big investment in education, uh, a very exceptional investment in education. So they put their children in elite schools in Sao Paulo, for instance, after some decades, their kids went to prestigious universities, they went to liberal schools, they studied you know, medicine, law, uh, engineering, which was something they managed to translate afterwards in politics. The Brazilian government in the 30s, in the 40s, they also moved, they made a gesture including more migrants in politics because they wanted to challenge old oligarchies in Sao Paulo as well. So there were a lot of things really that happened. It's it's very hard to find one reason. And I guess after some decades, it just becomes a chain effect, a a social effect in the sense that it becomes something traditional in the community just, just to aim. Uh, for politics.
2: And of course, it's not only the names, but also culturally. I mean, most Brazilians, even if you don't have a heritage, I mean, look at the food. Even when I tell my friends from outside Brazil, I say, you know, kind of Lebanese snacks, they're, they're very common for us. You know, they are our, it's like eating a burger or something. Do you know what I mean? It's so kind of, and I think Sao Paulo is one of the best kind of Lebanese foods in the world, I would say. I mean, you, you traveled more, you tell me.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a touchy subject. I, I keep telling my Lebanese friends, you know, the best kibbeh that I had in my life was in Brazil. I love kibbeh, you know, raw kibbeh. That's probably my favorite dish. And and i I'm, love I'm it. kind of convinced because it, it changed a little bit. I mean, whereas you would probably cook it with lamb, for instance, in Lebanon, in Brazil, we do it with beef for obvious reasons. We, we just don't have the costume of eating lamb, you know. Uh, so it's a very different dish in that sense. Uh, we have, you know, all these little things like my grandfather. I mean, although I was not born in an Arab family, you know, we had a lot of family traditions. My grandfather would eat, you know, he would scoop the kibbeh with an onion and he would eat like as if the onion was a uh, spoon. So we have like all these little things that it just it just makes a delightful uh, experience. But you're right. I mean, I keep telling my friends that they keep being you know, shocked how much kibbeh we eat, how much fiha. You know, the, one of the biggest fast food chains in Brazil is called Habibs, right? And it's basically an Arab food chain, and it just that, that just baffles people.
2: And it's interesting about the raw kibbeh because here in London, of course, we have a few Lebanese restaurants, but they don't serve raw kibbeh for some reason. And and I even asked the waiter once. I I don't know if it's according to the laws or here in the UK if it's a bit difficult, but it's definitely not the same as in Brazil.
1: Yeah, there's something interesting with raw kibbeh. It's one of the things that I've been researching in my PhD. Uh, here in the U.S. Uh, I've been working on a paper on on Arab foodways in Brazil in particular. And one of the things is that I I feel we eat more kibe, more raw kibe in Brazil, even than people eating Lebanon, in the sense that in Lebanon, it's not something that you go to a restaurant to eat. Usually you eat it at home, your grandmother makes it. It's something that you're supposed to go to the butcher, you know, choose the meat. You should prove the meat there. You have to make sure, you know, they're cutting it properly. It's not something you just outside of the household right it's it's i mean i might be mistaken someone might correct me but i just have the sense that this kind of fast food approach to to rocky bay it's something very particular in brazil that's fascinating i I want to read all
2: your findings if you do any extra research and finally just i mean the book is really it's excellent super interesting it's called brimos and again even that is a bit playful i mean if you could explain for our listeners it's it's kind of a joke right because it's just the way immigrants used to speak as well in a way
1: yeah so brimos basically means cousins in portuguese but it's misspelled uh the right word in portuguese is primos with a p uh but of course when the first era migrants arrived in brazil they didn't pronounce the b sound i mean there's no b sound Uh, actually the opposite there is no p sound in arabic right so they would say brimos uh, and they would say, you know, oh, that, that person is my, my cousin, that person is my cousin. So it, it kind of became, it's hard to explain, it's hard to translate. And I feel that when I tell my friends in the US, for instance, they get a little concerned that that might be, you know, offensive in a way, or it's, it's not respectful, you know, to put that word in the title of the book. But in Brazil, in particular, it's a very affectionate uh, word that people still use i mean even when i publish the book i see you know people commenting on instagram on twitter and, and even the descendants themselves are saying you know oh look brimo there's a book about us oh we love talking about the brimo so it, it, it's it's a very i guess it gets lost in translation
2: and listen Jogo, the book is amazing i think the next step i would say is to have, to have it published in arabic and english i would say right i think there's a lot of interest towards that topic
1: yeah, I would love that. And, and listen, it's, it's a very important part of the history of Lebanon, which is something that I've been trying to push uh, here in the US uh, academia, just, there's a very big lack of studies on the migrants who left uh, Lebanon in the beginning of the 20th century, which is really mind blowing, given the fact that at that period, one third of the population of Mount Lebanon migrated, we're talking about, you know, 33% of the population going abroad, and they never are taken as part of the history of Lebanon, which is, for me, it's just a very you know, a big fault of American or foreign academia, and even in Lebanon, people don't talk about it that much, so I just feel that although it's a book about migrants, I mean, Lebanese migrants in Brazil, and it's about Brazilian politics, it's also, the way I see it, it's also a book about the history of Lebanon, so I hope at least it would get interested, I mean, people would get interested in, in Lebanon or in the U.S. or in the U.K., and I'm very, very open for for translations. Thanks, Diogo,
0: and nice to see that he's also in love with Raw Kibe, like I am. And his Twitter is at Diogo Bersito. And now, the images and stories that are coming out of Afghanistan are not only shocking, they are being taken by local Afghan journalists and photographers, many of whom are currently risking their lives and have been doing so for the last few months. One of them is the photojournalist Massoud Hosseini, Born in Afghanistan, Massoud has been chief photographer at the Associated Press and a photojournalist at Agence France Press. He's won the Pulitzer Prize for his work in the country. Until a couple of days ago, he and his colleague, Lin O'Donnell, were in Afghanistan, covering the Taliban's takeover of the country. Fearing for their safety, they flew out of Kabul last Sunday, just hours before militants entered the Afghan capital. He's safe in the Netherlands now, and he spoke to Monaco's Emma Nelson, who spoke to him on our news show, The Globalist, earlier in the week.
3: Masoud, welcome to Monocle24. It is good to know that you are alive and well and safe. Just tell us what happened to you
4: well um uh, unfortunately uh, I um, experienced a really stressful week when I was in Kabul. Um, well before that we were uh, me and my colleague we were uh, covering uh, um, Herat war and uh, I saw uh, and I felt that the war was really really uh, uh, closing to people our life and the government, was completely disabled and already was broken and failed from inside. They couldn't uh, fight and resist with Taliban. And uh, we were um, witnessing a lot of violence, a lot of uh, horrible things. And when I get back to Kabul, I, uh, I and my colleague, we both decide to leave Afghanistan as soon as possible. So we booked the flight. And, uh, uh, well, in the night before uh, our flight uh, uh, kind of take off, um attacks started around Kabul. And uh, first, uh, unfortunately, because the government of uh, Ghani was a really unprofessional and ignorant uh, team in the palace. So, and we they never listened to any people, any community and any advice. And we were just uh, insisting them that um, the palace and uh, Ghani needs to um, uh, 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 reorganize the team and pro- uh, uh, kind of employ professional people, not people who are his relatives or friends or whatever. But unfortunately, they didn't listen. And uh, Taliban, before that, they take over the cities. They were they won the uh, propaganda war and. Myself, as a personal and as as a citizen, I tried my best to do it. But unfortunately, um, uh, when Herat and other cities uh, fall, and the day, the night before that, we wanted to leave leave Afghanistan. So propaganda work uh, again started at uh, 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 around 12 a.m. and uh, then uh, 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 every news and every information which was attacking to the social media in Afghanistan, was so disappointing. And uh, um, I, I could hear uh, bombing around Kabul as well that night. So um, early morning, I decided to drive to um, airport and to the, in the way there was no police at all, and there was no um, government security forces or anything related to government. Could be seen in the street, so I, I realized that uh, Kabul already are fallen is fallen, and I kind of was under um, really really stressed. When we got to the airport, airport airport was a mess. You know, um, a lot of foreigners, a lot of people who had the ticket uh, wanted to leave, and uh, it was a lot of uh, nerve uh, and. Uh, Angry people around, and uh, when we left, and when we stamped our passport and got into the Turkish plane, and uh, when we took off, it was a really a hard emotional moment for me because I knew that I might not be able to uh, visit my country again. And when uh, we landed in Istanbul, and I checked the news, unfortunately, uh, I saw many many heartbroken. Uh, um, pictures from Kabul, that Taliban uh, were inside a bubble garden, which was a place for youth to date there, to have fun there. And, uh, well, unfortunately, I thought I that Kabul and Afghanistan now is done, is finished, is in the hand of the terrorists again.
3: Masood, you won the 2012 Pulitzer Prize for a picture of a girl crying in fear after a suicide bomber attacked Um a shrine in Kabul. You have spent your life documenting trauma and, and disaster. How important is it still for you to record what you witness, what's going on in Afghanistan? You say you don't know when you're going to go back, but is there a chance that you will do one day?
4: Well, um, to be honest, uh, I always loved Afghanistan and I always love Afghanistan. And um, Well, uh, when I came back from Iran uh, to my own country for the first time, I fell in love with the beauty and the great uh, pictures and everything through photography. Uh, Well, um, I don't know uh, uh, what will happen after this and I don't know if I can go back to Afghanistan and take pictures or not. Well, Taliban in 90s were famous to broken the cameras, um, to to make a, a people blind, and uh, they they were murdering of the photos and pictures. So I don't know what will happen. They captured Kabul. You know those who um, explode that bomb in the uh, in that day that I took picture and I won Pulitzer uh, a prize with it. Now they uh, rule the country. We saw the ne- the news and the pictures in the airport. It was too heartbroken. We all um, uh, worked 20 years to bring democracy, to bring justice. But unfortunately, a uh, weak person, a uh, completely crazy and mad person like Ghani uh, destroyed everything. So I don't know if I am able to go back and take picture of my beloved Afghanistan or what? You know, I don't know, to be honest.
3: What about the photographers and the journalists left behind, those who are cataloguing what is happening now? Um, There are real fears for them, aren't they, that that what the cameras are recording are sending pictures to the rest of the world that the Taliban simply do not want us to see?
4: Yeah, well... uh, exactly you know uh, <clears throat> unfortunately everybody else that i know they are trying to get out the country the photographers journalists activists and every other part of the democracy actually let's say that we had in afghanistan and um, whatever is coming out is what um, taliban tried to use it like uh, they are uh, i mean uh, using uh, mobile phones for propaganda the pictures that they send the videos that they sent on the social media is what they do it's a uh, engineering like uh, um the the picture the video came out from the airport that the young people are trying to get into the us uh, plane that's uh, completely engineering uh, video and picture from Afghanistan after the U.S. and the uh, President Ghani left Afghanistan. So this is what they want to show, that this is the uh, chaos right now. And if you want to uh, uh, be—this chaos to be controlled, then you need to um, kind of recognize our Emirate, and then we need to rule in the way that we want. So then with these reasons, then they will uh, start a hard and really, really horrible and uh, worst dictatorship in Afghanistan, trying to kill people, trying to cut off the hands of people, trying to behead people, trying to um, beat women in the street and just saying that this is our country and we know how to rule these people. So um, unfortunately, um, uh, the other photographers and the other journalists cannot and do not uh, access to the, any news. Many uh, female journalists that I know uh, are uh, staying at home and they are really scared of uh, being punished by Taliban. And uh, uh, in, in some cities like Herat and Kandahar, uh, Taliban already uh, sent uh, uh, a woman back home. Uh, I, uh, one of my last our last uh, interview in Herat before that is falling was a really motivated investigator uh, investigation journalist. She was working for cleed, and she was so motivated that she's doing her role uh, for for the country, and unfortunately, now I don't know and. We don't have any information about her, Uh, she is uh, out of the job and that great and big motivation for the country is going to be wasted after death, unfortunately. That was Masood Hossaini, Pulitzer-winning
0: Afghan photographer. (music) And finally on the show. You know, some places are finally opening up to travel, making it possible again. So, of course, I had the pleasure to speak with Lee Schaefer again from the travel title Lodestar's Anthology. We'll talk about their new issue, which is all about Greece. And, of course, we have a preview of their next plans.
5: I think sort of travel was always there for people. You know, you notice the people were very besotted with the idea of armchair travel and sort of escape any way you could whether that was sort of reading a magazine watching these television shows I think we always knew it was going to come back we always sympathized so much with the travel industry with those small hotels and restaurants that were just I mean I don't know how the ones that did survive did but I think travel was always there as this distant dream and the idea that it's back in any form is just so wonderful it's sort of signals that there might be a return so I think we always we were always waiting and now for some places and some people in the world it's it's here and it's really lovely and it's lovely for the travelers and it's lovely for the destinations because they need it
2: they need it and so much so I mean the the new issue actually is about Greece which is a country I mean a beautiful country which I've never been but I will be very soon but I'm very the,
5: excited for you. Yes,
2: I'm so excited. But, but tell us, I mean, for them, tourism meant, means a lot, actually. It's a country that is heavily dependent on tourism as well. And I think it's exciting news that they are kind of opening up a little bit. Perhaps the season will be different than the others. But tell us about your experience in Greece. I mean, it's it must be a beautiful country because everybody talks about, and, and the Greek issue is amazing.
5: It was so surreal because I actually got to go there in October 2020 in that sort of like very end of that brief period where we had movement last year and to travel again like that it was like a reminder of how things used to be you sort of slipped back to this time of ease and excitement and you were able to connect with people and have these conversations and these things that weren't your bedroom and it just rewires the way you think and see the world it was so glorious and everybody that we met were just so excited that people were traveling and people were sort of brave enough and people were doing it with a lot more purpose. I do think travel has changed a lot over the past 18 months. I think we are doing it a lot more consciously. We are taking it slower. We're spending more time in one place and really, really digging into it and really wanting to make those connections and discover those small tavernas and come home with olive oils and just feel like we've seen something and been there and immersed ourselves.
2: And to be honest, there was always the premise of Lord Stars Anthology, even before the pandemic, I guess, right?
5: It was, but I've even noticed with the magazine, although that was always our goal, we've over the past 18 months really started focusing a lot more on people's stories. It was always there, but we're giving it more time and more space now because I think that's what is important about travel. It is, it is the people behind it, the small businesses, the artisans, the people that are finding ways to promote the environment and sustainability. And really sort of it's about sort of seeking and joining the world and the people who are managing to give that a platform.
4: And for
2: the Greek issue, you were telling me where, where did you go? Where did you report it for the the magazine? I'm curious, of course, as I'm going there and I'm sure some of our listeners will go as well. uh,
5: I'm very curious about it. I had a few days in Athens which were absolutely amazing I'd never been before but it's a sort of place that you have seen in your mind so many times before you go there it is so steeped in history and and culture and writing so it was just amazing to be somewhere that felt familiar even though I had no boots on the ground yet so that was that was astounding and then I went down to the Peloponnese which is an area that's been threatened by the fires recently and that was astounding because that was like truly a place that felt like it had been untouched by time, these beaches and these towns, and the fact that the gods and the myths are all tied into them. It was just, I mean, I think I may have had rose tinted glasses after many, many months of lockdown, but it was just this explosion of colors and passion and story and food. And, you know, it was weathered and it was wild and it's a slightly rougher part of Greece, but oh my God, I'm the minute I can leave Australia, I'm, I'm back on a plane there.
2: Listen, you're selling it to me as well. And one interesting, one good thing about Lodestar ontology, of course, the new issue is about Greece. But to be honest, I mean, from all your issues, doesn't matter if it's Mexico or Wales, it's kind of, I don't think he has a time. Of course, you have to publish new uh, magazines, but I think even if someone wants to buy, I don't know, the Mexican issue, it doesn't matter if it's published a few months ago. I think it's, it, it it still means something, if you know what I mean. And do you have that? People going on your website and buying kind of, older issues, and is that quite frequent?
5: It is. It's really lovely as well when you're the one who's made the magazines that people will want to buy a collection of them, but not only that, they'd want to gift a collection of them to somebody else. It's the idea that it's resonating so much that you want to share it. It's just wonderful. And that was always the aim to be timeless. And that sort of goes back to the idea that we delve into culture, we delve into people, we delve into into place and history because that is what doesn't change. That is what's eternal and that is what makes us want to travel.
0: And I
2: wanna ask as well, as I always do, I mean, what's next? I think you gave me a little preview and to be honest, it might be based where you are now.
5: (laughs) It is, so I'm currently in lockdown and what happens when I'm in lockdown is I get these very big ideas that I act on after, you know, a couple of glasses of wine maybe. So we are doing an Australia reprint because we made Australia so many years ago now, it's essentially an entirely new, much bigger issue. So that will be out just in time for Christmas. And then after that, we're going to be revisiting New Zealand and making an entirely new magazine all about Spain. So there's a lot happening. I am very busy in lockdown and I am very grateful for that.
2: And to be honest, I think even for people like me, I always dreamt to go to Australia in a way. I think people are curious, maybe you should give them a taste and hopefully Australia will be open next year, hopefully.
5: (laughs) Oh my God, fingers and toes and absolutely everything crossed. It's been really lovely. So I grew up here and I spent 10 years in London and to come back and to spend the time that I did, there was a slight window where I could move around and sort of reconnect. It's just wonderful to see how much this country has changed, how proud it is of its Indigenous history, the way that art and culture is being promoted now. It's entirely different. So it's a magazine about nature. It's about landscapes. It's revealing there is so much more about this country than you'd expect. And I really hope, it, um, really hope it brings people down south.
0: Thanks, Liz. And the latest issue of Lodestar's Anthology is out now. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Nora Hall. And if you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonoco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. Meanwhile, do subscribe to the show on Monaco.com, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. It's Led Zeppelin with Immigrant Song. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.